Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had on There Are No Girls on the Internet is with a writer who was targeted and harassed online about how she continues to stay safe while doing visible work on the internet. Without missing a beat, she said, anybody worried about online harassment should sign up for Delete Me. I signed up for Delete Me right then and there, and I personally recommend it to anyone. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls, code nogirls. Just a quick heads up, this episode talks about sexual violence. You're listening to Disinformed, a miniseries from There Are No Girls on the Internet. I'm Bridget Todd. When I was first coming of age online, we talked about the internet and the real world as two totally different spheres. The internet was where you went to escape from the real world. They were not connected. But by now, it's easy to see that that is no longer the case. What happens online is what happens in the real world. And this is especially true for younger folks. So what happens if this generation is immersed in an internet that's serving them up increasingly extremist content? In 2012, feminist activist Laura Bates created the Everyday Sexism Project, a database cataloging women's experiences with sexism from around the world. After she was targeted by misogynists online, she went undercover to investigate the unseen organized movement of thousands of men wishing violence and worse upon women. 
the terrorism that we're not really talking about. She found that these men are taking advantage of social media algorithms to recruit and radicalize boys into a world of racism and misogyny in online spaces that are sometimes called the manosphere. Her book, Men Who Hate Women, chronicles what she learned about how it operates and why we should all be paying attention. Well, I think as a woman who writes and speaks about feminism, especially online, I was already aware of these communities. I think that for most women, and particularly feminists, more so for trans women, for women of color online, these men come to you. They make themselves known to you in online abuse. So I've been aware of them for a long time. These men are members of communities who have been sending me perhaps 200 rape and death threats a day for the best part of the last 10 years. But for a very long time, there was an argument in feminist communities that we shouldn't give them the oxygen of publicity. And that was an argument I was I was sympathetic to, I largely agreed with. But something changed for me. I do a lot of work in schools with young people, talking and working with young people around sexual consent, healthy relationships, gender stereotypes. And suddenly, after visiting perhaps two schools a week on average for about nine years, in the last two years, there was a really marked shift in the responses I was seeing from boys at schools. And don't get me wrong, those conversations have always been awkward, sometimes stilted, sometimes challenging, but they'd also generally been very rewarding conversations. And suddenly what I was finding was that boys were showing up with a very determined resistance to engaging at all. They were showing up already with very extreme views about women and about feminism, that I was a feminazi bitch coming in to tell them why I hated men. And they were showing up with misconceptions. So really believing very deeply that there is a huge feminist conspiracy at the heart of our government undermining white men who are the real victims of today's society, quoting the same false statistics about false rape allegations being rife, about men being the majority of victims of domestic abuse. And at that point, I suddenly joined the dots and realized that these boys were being radicalized by exposure to the extremist online communities that I'd been aware of as a feminist for a long time. At that point, I thought if these groups are managing to reach teenage boys in a quite scary and pervasive way with their online propaganda, then actually perhaps not giving them the oxygen of publicity isn't working. Perhaps it's actually allowing them to operate under the radar and to have a quite major and worrying impact without parents or educators or wider society having much idea that these communities exist at all. That was what really pushed me into wanting to write the book because I felt that suddenly these communities were posing a very real offline threat in terms of that grooming and radicalization, which of course we never use those terms to describe when it's white men doing it, but also in terms of, of course, their attacks, the fact that these men were increasingly carrying out violent attacks in real life, and yet many people didn't know that this was a form of extremism that even existed. Yeah, I mean, you're, that is so true. It's actually one of the things that kind of prompted me to start this podcast was, you know, I think there had been a mass shooting in the United States, and I thought, you know, just like in many of the cases of mass violence, this person who was the perpetrator had a history of domestic violence allegations, had a history of women speaking up and saying, hey, this is someone who's been harassing me. But of course, we know those kinds of uh, warning signs are often ignored because it's women speaking up. And I thought, wow, if only we kind of took seriously the experiences folks were having online and uh, really thought about that seriously, some of these mass incidents of violence could be prevented. And so I'm happy to see you sort of digging into that work. I'm wondering, could, could you tell me a bit more about some of the ways that you've seen young men be targeted 
radicalized and sort of sucked into these online spaces that teach them some pretty toxic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's very sophisticated. They have extremely well-honed radicalization techniques and they're very open about it. So these men will share their recruitment strategies with each other quite openly in their online communities. They talk specifically about using memes, using cultural delivery methods, cultural touch points, funny Instagram memes, viral YouTube videos, taking advantages of algorithms on platforms like YouTube that will automatically direct young people to increasingly extreme content. And they describe these delivery systems as, in their own words, adding cherry flavor to children's medicine. They deliberately target boys as young as 11, and they don't wait for boys to come to them in their communities. That's quite a common misconception. They find boys where boys are. So they are in online gaming. They're in gaming strategy chat rooms. They're showing up a lot on bodybuilding forums, um, which is a very clever space for them to operate in because, of course, there they have a ready-made group of young men already um, sort of self-selecting as having preoccupations with traditionally masculine ways of showing up in the world and portraying themselves. So they are very clever about finding these spaces where boys might be isolated and vulnerable online in quite mainstream spaces. And then they groom them very carefully and very gradually. So at first, it's just a few misogynistic jokes here and there. And then if a boy seems to respond to that, then maybe it's a link to a pickup artist website or to a YouTube video. And maybe from there, it kind of gets very gradually further down the rabbit hole. And they very explicitly see recruiting boys into anti-feminism and misogyny as a gateway to white supremacy and neo-Nazism. So they are seeing it as a kind of pathway for radicalization. And some really interesting studies have been done that really back that up, that many men who end up playing pivotal roles in the white supremacist movement, for example, are men who have made their name and kind of created a following and cultivated particular skills of online abuse in anti-feminist movements like and Father's Day or Gamergate. I'm not surprised hearing you say this at all. I know after the insurrection at the Capitol in January, so many of the men who were um, there and involved were really well known to people. You know, they were they had these uh, big online personas, oftentimes like live streaming what they did. And um, a lot of them had prior domestic violence and harassment of women uh, allegations against them. And so mm-hmm. I do think it's difficult, but but important to demonstrate the ways that white supremacy and misogyny are sort of, it's like that Venn diagram is a circle, you know, it's it's one and the same, and they're kind of uh, very much linked. Absolutely. This came out so clearly in researching the book. There's this public perception that we're talking about these two separate groups, these two separate problems. But in every way, when you research this, you realize that, that that's not right, that this is this is part of the same whole. So you're seeing, for example, the lexicon, the kind of unique language of the manosphere and male supremacist communities showing up very much as part of the language of white supremacy, the alt-right, far-right communities. You can see it there in the language. But you can see it also in the kind of fundamental roots of their ideology. Incels are not just furious that women aren't sleeping with them. They're furious if women are sleeping with non-white men instead of them. That's what they see to be something that absolutely outrages. And that's a repeated focus that they come back to. And white supremacists, of course, are also focused, obsessed with misogynistic issues. You know, they're obsessed with the idea of birth rates, with the idea of so-called replacement theory. They obsess over keeping white women in sexual slavery to breed a so-called master race. They're obsessed with the forced sterilization of women of color. They talk about, for example, the idea that 
um, they see white women as a kind of dehumanized, fragile commodity that they see as being plundered by kind of invading um, immigrant men. So very clearly, if you can look at that and not see misogyny, then you're only seeing half of the picture. And in the same way, if you can look at what's going on with incels and the manosphere and not recognize the racism inherent in that, then it really holds us back, I think, from meaningfully tackling the problem. Yeah, I would love to talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned earlier that you look at platforms like YouTube, sometimes they're serving up these ads, you know, through their algorithm or through their recommended videos. I know through, you know, the research I've done for this show that Facebook's own um, own reports show internally that most times, I think it was 86% of the time when somebody joins an extremist group, it's because Facebook's algorithm has recommended it for them. Wow. Um, I guess my question to you is, what do you think the responsibility of social media platforms and platforms like YouTube what role should they be playing in curbing this kind of radicalization in men? Well, I think, first of all, they and we have to recognize their influence, because I think for adults, they think of YouTube in particular as the kind of benign home to movie trailers and grumpy cat videos. And there's a real lack of awareness that they have this pivotal role that 85% of US teens use YouTube, that they say explicitly that it's where they're getting their news from as well. And that YouTube has this, this massive kind of um, stranglehold, if you like. There are 1.5 billion YouTube users in the world. So that's more than the number of households that own televisions. And YouTube accounts for 37% of mobile internet traffic internationally. And 70% of the YouTube videos that are watched are recommended to users by the algorithm. So if you put those two statistics together, you realize that a quarter of all international mobile traffic is accounted for by this one algorithm designed by a workforce that's 67% male and 5% black. Um, being being telling people what to watch. And so suddenly that becomes a power that should be interrogated, that should be held to account, that should be accountable for the impact it's having. And what I find really frustrating is that there tends to be this tendency from social media companies to go, hey, this is so difficult. You know, this is a huge thing. There's not much we can do. The algorithm wasn't built to do this. And of course, I'm sure that's true, but I don't think it's a coincidence either that it was built by a community of people that is not particularly diverse and that didn't foresee these issues happening. The argument that we can't hold them accountable and that there's simply nothing they can do because it's too difficult is absolute nonsense when you're talking about companies that have an income that's bigger than the income of some small countries. Of course, they have the money to tackle this, right? If they really cared, if it was a priority, they could hire 20,000 human moderators and upskill them and train them in coordination with specific community groups who are affected by these issues. There's a lack of will there. We have to acknowledge that, that that's what's going on. Yeah, something that you brought up that I really uh, harp on a lot, and I think it's complicated, uh, but I think it's really important to understand I talk a lot on this show about the importance of having inclusive teams in tech spaces and why underrepresented folks, so women, trans folks, queer folks, people of color, black folks, all need to feel like it's our do like tech is our domain, like we need to be able to take up space in those in those areas, not just because it's the right thing to do or because it's, you know, because I'm a black woman and I want to be in these spaces, but because of exactly what you just described, when you don't have inclusive teams building the 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 tools that really do run our world and really do control how and what we we you know come across in terms of the media landscape, that is when things get missed, right? And so if you have a team that is building an algorithm that is going to control so much of what we consume, and that team is mostly white and mostly male, it's not surprising to me that these things 
go on to create unforeseen harms that this team that was mostly homogenous did not account for. And so, you know, I I think it's critical the way that the way that underrepresented voices and people and identities are seen in these spaces is critical to I think getting to a place where tech is not causing so much harm because it it's it right now I feel like it's a bit out of control and and I think that sometimes that can be kind of a a complicated chain of things to to sell someone on. Absolutely. And I really think that that lack of representation is deliberately and actively exacerbated by the lack of transparency and the lack of accountability that these platforms have on dealing with harassment. Because if you have a company, and this is absolutely the MO of most of the major social media platforms, instead of having a clear strategy on harassment and on these issues that works for everybody, what they do is they judge each case separately. And what that means is that when a case hits the media and hits the headline, they take action because they want to clear up, they want to protect their reputation. So that means that the cases that get acted on are dependent on media attention. And we know that media attention is likely to be bestowed on a young, privileged, white, attractive, non-disabled, cisgender woman who has a problem. So you get someone like Taylor Swift she's being abused online, suddenly Instagram is taking action, it's announcing new policies, it's announcing tools all over the place to protect her and to deal with it. But if you have a woman whose profile is less likely to be picked up by our racist and misogynistic media, that means that Facebook or whoever it is, they're not going to get a call from a journalist saying, what are you doing about the harassment of this particular woman? And that means that those voices that we most desperately needed in those spaces are the ones being driven offline and being driven out of those spaces. So it's such a vicious circle and it really is kind of self-perpetuating, I think. Let's take a quick break. Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. 
Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls code nogirls. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance Planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay, they can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. And we're back. Basically, the only way to get social media companies to take it seriously when you're being harassed online is to be famous enough for it to generate negative media attention. It's clear to me that tech companies are not optimizing their platforms to be safer from the jump. Instead, they only take action when they're reacting to bad press. I wonder if it's because they are optimizing their platforms for harassers. If they are optimizing their platforms because it works in their favor, that actually these vast networks of men who are spending a huge amount of their time online are staying on those platforms. I do wonder if there is a... a, a deliberate decision going on here about which groups of users they're protecting and at what cost to other groups. Have you ever felt like negative, inflammatory, or polarizing content gets more attention on your social media feed? It might not just be in your head. According to Angry by Design, Toxic Communication and Technical Architectures in the Journal of Humanities and Social Science Communication, platforms like YouTube and Facebook privilege incendiary content setting up a stimulus response loop that promotes outrage expression. So rather than seeing positive content, algorithms keep us angry and on edge by surfacing up a steady diet of outrage. These algorithms are optimizing for content that gets a lot of clicks and attention. And that, that content happens to be very negative. And so part of me always wonders, you know, is that why, like the fact that I see the tweets that are, that are inflammatory or super negative or super, you know, um, partisan or whatever, the re- is the reason I see those more is because they just get more attention. Therefore, these algorithms are always going to privilege that kind of content. And, you know, part of me feels like, well, maybe it's just the maybe it's just the platforms showing us what we what we as like, you know, messy humans just want to see, right? Like, oh, I'm not interested in the positive content. I want to see the negative content. Mm-hmm. But even still, it's like, is that a, is the, is that an online space where I want to be, where folks want to be, a space where the content that it often serves you is content that is really negative and not content that makes you feel good? It just really, I don't know. It makes me wonder why 
personally for me, like why I spend time on spaces that make me feel so miserable sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the the experience of so many of the women I interviewed for the book. And in many cases, the choice eventually for their own mental health was that they removed themselves from those spaces. And I think it's really interesting that the average white man's experience of social media is not necessarily a net negative in the same way. Um, there have been so many examples where white men versus their female colleagues or their colleagues of color have created similar accounts and have released similar kinds of information or opinions and the results in terms of the responses that they've received have been so dramatically different. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to think as well about how all of this intersects with a kind of capitalist um, urge for social media to be selling us things. Mm. Because we know absolutely from kind of um, former engineers at YouTube, Guillaume Chaslow is a good example of this, who I quote in the book. He's a guy who comes forward and says, look, the YouTube algorithm is not about optimizing for you to see the most um, high quality content or the most relevant content. It's about whatever will keep you watching for the longest, because that's all that matters to the algorithm is getting you to see as many adverts as possible, essentially. And we know that the things that keep people watching for the longest are increasingly extreme content. And as many researchers have pointed out, that's not such a big deal if you're looking for a video about, you know, um, um, cooking and then suddenly you're being taken to an all-you-can-eat contest video. But it does become serious if you're looking at something about women and suddenly you're being told that the gender pay gap is a myth and from there that actually women are lying bitches who make up rape allegations and from there that maybe we'd all be better off if women were forced into sexual slavery. There suddenly it becomes pretty important that that's what's going on. You know, you mentioned that some of the experiences the women that you interviewed for your book shared with you are that eventually they're just, they leave these spaces, they leave social media. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk so much about things like deplatforming and people being kicked off, you know, social media or, you know, quote, cancel culture. And we never sort of talk about the issues of the women and the voices who are just kept from speaking, just kept from putting their opinions out there, who are pushed off of these spaces because they are no longer safe. I feel that that often gets missed in the conversation that like, isn't that a form of deplatforming? Isn't that a speech issue that yeah. these women are functionally unable to, to, you know, express themselves? It's ironic that the freedom of speech debate is usually dominated by people who are claiming to have been silenced, often in media, major <laughs> media platforms, writing, speaking out about their silencing. Usually white men speaking out about how white men can't say anything anymore. Yes. And we're all reading them saying it. And but it's like on every, on, every, on every page of the paper. Yeah, also being picked up by those same algorithms. But we don't tend to think about kind of freedom of speech in the, in the negative, like freedom of speech from people who don't get to speak to tell us that they've lost their voices in the first place. And I think there's a risk for our political discourse as well, that we have a generation of young people who are honing their political skills online. They're often described as a politically disengaged or apathetic generation. But actually, I think it's a generation who are just politically active in very new and different ways. And a lot of that involves technology. So these are young people who are debating on Twitter, who are cutting their teeth in political debate online. And if those online platforms are unsafe for women and girls, for various minoritized communities, then we are kind of weeding them out from the public discourse before they ever get the point where they might reach those public spaces later on, where suddenly we'll really feel the loss of them. And it might be that we don't realize that that's happening until it's too late. That's such a good point. I hadn't even, I hadn't even really thought about that, that 
you know, what does a landscape looks like look like when a big section of that generation is just quiet and and mm-hmm. go silent? You know, that's a real that's a real problem. More after a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. 
LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let's get right back into it. I got my first computer when I was in junior high. But most younger folks have lived their entire lives online in ways that I could never imagine when I first got online. So if the internet is the backdrop upon which we're all living our lives, what happens when that backdrop is really harmful or toxic? What's it doing to a generation of younger folks who are coming up completely immersed in it? And we've never really seen it because we're at kind of hovering on the edge of the first real generation coming of age who have lived their whole lives on social media. We have this kind of unique political moment that never really gets picked up on this. I find it wild that we're living at this moment in history. It's never happened before and will never happen again. And yet it's never really discussed where a generation of non-digital natives is parenting and educating a generation of digital natives. And there is this chasm there, this huge gap in culture and understanding of what their world is like, what the day-to-day landscape of their online world is like amongst parents who grew up in a pre-internet age. And that generation will be coming of age. And what will that look like? when our political representatives are being drawn from a generation who have literally grown up with the sheer daily bombardment of racism and misogyny and transphobia that comes with living your life on the internet in the way that young people do today. And I don't think we'll know what that looks like until we get there. And I think when we do, it will be a shock. Wow. I, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but you know, it's true. And I I do think, I think about this a lot. So I, I, I don't, I don't know if you're a parent, I don't have children, but I have a lot of young people in my life. And I think about how hard it is, how hard it must be, or how different it must be to be wading through this very complex online experience that young people today have to wade through. And like, as you said, that experience is often racially charged, politically charged. It's often, I think that it, it very much overlaps with like real life. You know, I think when I was coming up, coming up online, people were like, oh, your online world and your real world. Today, it's very clear that those are those overlap, you know, things that you say online get you fired from your job or in trouble at school. And they're largely wading through it with parents who have not had that experience. You're exactly right. I hadn't even thought about that. It's and I think the people, like we see it in the way that we report on things that happen online. We don't take them seriously. We don't look seriously at them. And as you were saying in the beginning of our interview, that lack of scrutiny allows for these things to just go unchecked. And so, you know, if you spend, if you're a, a reporter who spends all this time being like, oh, kids on the internet, what are they doing? Taking selfies? Like, oh, just, just, <laughs> just trivializing it. When it really becomes an issue that we should pay attention to, you know, it can be a problem. Absolutely. One of the experts I interviewed for the book, Dr. Carleen Furman, she said that one of the things that she really sees in her work with young people around sexual violence is that it's extremely rare for her to come across a case of sexual violence that doesn't have an online component. Mm. And that adults find it difficult to recognize that connection. But for young people, there is no meaningful distinction between their real lives and their online lives. And she said that the normalization of violence in the online world is having a massive impact in young people's perceptions of violence offline. And that's very much something that I see in my work as well. When I'm working with young people, it's really common to hear them say things like rape is a compliment, really. It's not rape if she enjoys it. You hear young people repeating stuff that they've seen in online porn and assuming that that's how they'll be called upon to behave in a sexual relationship. So um, for example, I visited a school where they'd had a rape case involving a 14-year-old boy and a teacher had said, 
why didn't you stop when she was crying? And he had said, because it's normal for girls to cry during sex, because that's what he'd seen online. And so much of what they're very mainstream, readily available online pornography is showing kids that sex apparently is something very violent and aggressive that's done by men to women. Again, it's racialized. There are these kind of fetishized racial stereotypes there. It very much suggests that it's normal for women to be hurt, humiliated and degraded during sex. And so I'm seeing young people who've experienced quite extreme sexual abuse and wouldn't recognize that what's happened to them is wrong or that they would ever have the right to tell someone or that support would be available because it's so normalized by what they're seeing online. And there's a real barrier to dealing with that when the majority of the parents I speak to, their conception of what online porn looks like is a kind of Playboy centerfold, but online. It's like FHM photos, but you see them on a website. There's very little recognition of of what the reality of that landscape looks like for the teenagers who are immersed in it on a daily basis. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be so incredibly difficult to navigate as a young person. And then, you know, talking to your parents about porn and sex is already so hard. Mm -hmm. And then like to have there be that kind of extreme barrier in terms of like, under, like your parents' ability to even understand what you're experiencing. That's that's gotta be so hard. I, I don't mm-hmm. envy the the I mean I always I say this in so many different ways. Like I don't envy kids today who have to navigate this largely on their own. It must be very complicated. Yeah, me neither. And then when you add into that mix, the fact that you've got this generation of teenage boys being actively groomed and sought after by these extremist groups, really sort of training them and radicalizing them to dehumanize their female peers, to objectify their female peers, then that kind of almost sets a match to the whole Tinder pile and up it goes. In Atlanta last month, eight people were murdered by a gunman at three spas. Initially, Sheriff's Captain Jay Baker parroted the perpetrator's own words that his heinous crimes were not motivated by race. But six of his victims were Asian women, whom he conflated with sexual temptation. So why the rush to not describe his actions as a racially motivated and gendered act of terror against Asian women? For the investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I, uh, they got that impression that, yes, he, he understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up and then kind of at the end of his rope and uh, and yesterday was a really bad day for him and this is what he did. Remorseful? Uh, I'm not going to go to, I don't know if he was remorseful or not. We see this time and time again, yet when we talk about these, these, these issues like in Atlanta, that awful sheriff said, oh, well, this guy had a bad day. He said he was a sex addict, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a situation where they just take the perpetrator at their word, like, oh, not motivated by race. Sure, checks out. You know, I wonder, why do you think it is so difficult for people to recognize this as extremist or even in some cases like terrorism? We almost never describe the kind of havoc that extremist extremist views on women and folks of color domestically in the United States. We almost never talk about that as terrorism. Like, why do you think that is? I think as a society, we are very comfortable with homogenizing other groups than white men. 
Um, but we tend to afford white men the dignity of discrete and unique identities. And so when a white man commits a mass atrocity because he doesn't fit the stereotype our society has of a terrorist, we look for other reasons and we dig into mental health and we see these, these kind of almost glowing photographs of him as a cherubic child. And we get a quote from his neighbor to say that he was a really nice guy who helped out with DIY around the neighborhood. And, and hey, something from his granny to say how sweet he was as a boy. And we portray these men as, uh, we, we can't, it's almost like as a society, we can't compute the fact that this could have happened because we're not able to recognize white men as a group who can be radicalized and who can carry out extremist acts, even when we reach a situation where they actually become the majority of perpetrators of mass shootings, we still fail to recognize it. And I think partly it's an inability to kind of see those white men in that way when the media reports on them in such a kind of forgiving and normalizing and excusing way. But it's also about who the victims are and, and a society that is used to seeing those folks as victims as well. In the case of, of men who have gone out and massacred women because they're women, for example, we haven't called these men terrorists. We never called Elliot Roger a terrorist, Alec Manassian, the Toronto van attacker who murdered 10 people and injured 16, 80% of the people he murdered being women, who explicitly told police, I've murdered these women because I hate women because women won't have sex with me. And the police came out and gave a press conference and said, there's no evidence of terrorism here. The city is safe. And I think in part, it's because brutality against people of color and violence against women are the wallpaper of our daily lives. These are things that have become almost normal. If one in three women on the planet is raped or beaten in her lifetime, then a man violently murdering women isn't exceptional. And so we struggle to recognize it as terrorism. And I think the police and the criminal justice system are at fault here. The media is at fault here. Uh, the way that all of us talk about these crimes and about these criminals are at fault. Um, and unless we start to recognize these particular forms of terrorism and extremism, it's very difficult to see how we'll move forward. Because right now, because we don't call those men ter terrorists, we don't look at their often online journeys that have filled them with hate as forms of radicalization. And if we don't do that, it means that nobody is looking at the grooming of the next generation of these attackers. Nobody is looking at boys. When I was researching the book, I rang up a lot of counter-extremist, counter-terror organizations globally. And I was really shocked that when I used the word incel, typically there would be a long silence on the other end of the phone. And then somebody would say, can you, can you spell that for me? There was a US government accountability office report, which was literally looking at the US government's response to forms of terrorism. And in the period of the report, there were three massacres carried out by male supremacists, by people with kind of incel backgrounds online, and they weren't included in the report. But over this 10 year period, they were tracing and carefully tracking um, people with extreme views on federal ownership of public land or extreme views on the environment. And um, shockingly, in the period of the report, no one was killed by people with those views. So we're looking at the wrong people. And, you know, you look at someone like Donald Trump describing Black Lives Matter activists as extremists, as terrorists, and you realize it matters if the people who are choosing, who is designated as a terrorist or an extremist, isn't representative of the communities that they're serving and has the ability to carry deep prejudice in them. So I guess it also comes back to that issue we discussed earlier about representation in the people who are policing and, and governing our countries and how we respond to this threat. You know, the people who are talking about it, who are investigating it, who are, you know, mired in it, 
they also have things they can't see. We, we all have biases. And so it, it really is, I think it's critical that we think about inclusion in terms of, you know, this, if, if we don't think about it and aren't able to talk about it, it will hurt us all as a society. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, and just as a side note, you know, your work with everyday feminism, creating a database for women to talk about their experiences with sexism and misogyny online, even 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 things like that where you're building these spaces and these platforms where you can sort of flip the script a little bit and say like, hey, we're here, we have experiences that we want to talk about online. You might think that the online experience is just, you know, dominated by men, but actually here is a slice of what we deal with or what we experience. I think doing that kind of uh, archival chronicling storytelling work is also very important in terms of getting us to like a culture shift where we think of these spaces as, you know, places where we are and, and places where we're, you know, showing up and taking up space, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I hope so. I hope that the internet is in a transitional phase. You know, I feel like the internet is in its infancy. It's basically still teething. I had, these are teething problems. It's so new, relatively speaking. Surely we can't carry on like this. Surely it can't be forever a space where where women, where people of color, where trans folk have to practically brace themselves to step in. You know, that can't be sustainable in the long run. I, I I really hope and believe that this can't just be the way that things are. This has to be a transitional period. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I want to take a moment to thank all of y'all for the reviews that many of you have left. They really do help the show grow. And yes, I personally read each and every one. I wanted to highlight one particular review because it really stuck with me. This is from listener Lisa Hazen. I've been listening for a while, but hadn't bothered rating the show and noticed the weirdly high proportion of one star reviews scrolled through and I couldn't believe anything shocks me anymore. But did some guy really just say a black woman's podcast is as bad as Jim Crow? How does someone go about the trouble to find the show, leave a rating, type that out, hit send and never have a single moment of self-awareness? Jokes on them, though. People like that are just enthusiastically proving the point that this podcast is necessary and more people with diverse perspectives need to have platforms. And Lisa, I just have to tell you, this review made me legit laugh out loud. In my first few weeks of making this podcast, it's true. Someone did leave a review comparing the podcast to Jim Crow, which I gotta say, feels a little bit harsh. (laughs) And Lisa, your review reminded me of how hard it was to keep pushing through, even when vocal critics like that left that kind of feedback. But reading your review today, you know, 50 episodes in, just made me really happy that I stuck with it. And I wanted to share this for anybody who's maybe thinking about starting a podcast of their own or making anything at all, really. Just ignore the trolls, ignore the haters, ignore that discouraging little voice in your head that tells you to stop and just keep going. So Lisa, thank you for the reminder. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help us grow by subscribing. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? We'd love to hear from you at hello at tangodi.com. Disinformed is brought to you by There Are No Girls on the Internet. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our supervising producer and engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. For more great podcasts, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional-grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 